Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Our guest today is Michael Shalov. Michael is the CEO and co founder of Fireblocks, an end to end security platform for transferring digital assets. The overall goal of Fireblocks is to provide financial institutions with a safe way to move blockchain based digital assets. We'll be discussing security as it relates to blockchain technology and cryptocurrency and the unique challenges that exist in the space. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Sal, for having me. Of course. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and also about your company? I know you yourself have a very interesting background. Yeah, sure. Started Fireblocks about two years ago, but uh, my background is uh, predominantly in cybersecurity. I uh, started in cybersecurity about 20 years ago in the Israeli Cyber Command, uh, basically the, the corresponding unit to the American NSA. And about nine years ago, I started my previous company, which was called Lacoon. We were doing mobile security for enterprise customers. So basically protecting their uh, mobile devices, iPhones and Androids from being hacked, malware attacks over uh, Wi-Fi, phishing and so on. Mm -hmm. I worked with quite a few of the Fortune 500 companies. So we had folks like Intel, Samsung, Geico and so on uh, as part of our uh, customer base. And then... In 2015, we got acquired by a company called Checkpoint. I was running their mobile and cloud security for about three years and sort of like, you know, stepped into the Bitcoin blockchain space around 2017, where we actually were investigating a fairly big hack that happened in South Korea. That was sort of like the first time that I sort of stepped into this asset class and uh, realized that there is work to be done here to, to increase the security. Wow. So you said that you were essentially, if I heard you correctly, Israeli equivalent of the like American NSA. Is that what you had said? Yeah. I mean, that in itself is super cool, right? I mean, to most people listening and to myself included, that's like a very interesting, very cool profession that you were in. So that was kind of the public sector, I guess that would be considered. What kind of made you move into the private sector of technology and cybersecurity? So the reality is that uh, you sort of like, you know, you don't have, a, you don't have an option there. <laughs> Basically, when you're 18 years old in Israel, you, you have a mandatory service. I see. And least to the army. And basically, I got selected to be in that unit. So it was more like sort of forced <laughs> mm. rather than uh, a choice. Uh, clearly, after four years, you, you can stay there for, for longer. But after four years, I was released and uh, went into the private sector. Okay, I see. Well, I mean, I personally don't know how I would feel about like mandatory service. However, now in the future, it seems like it's a very cool thing that I would brag about it, right? I mean, that's like a great profession to have in your past, I think, to work for the equivalent of an NSA, at least to me anyway, who enjoys cybersecurity and that kind of thing. So yeah, very cool. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's definitely the best training ground for cybersecurity. It's sort of like, you know, it was always been and clearly back in those days, the, the cutting edge of that field. And mm-hmm. you know, Jay speaking, that's why I'm not sure about the, the exact number, but probably like, you know, 30 or 40% of the cybersecurity companies are sort of led or they have uh, some core that uh, comes from those units. Interesting. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Like you said, most militaries are going to be on the cutting edge of these types of things. So that really is the best training, like you would say. So. Very interesting. So Fireblocks, can you talk a little bit about what Fireblocks is and give us a brief rundown of Fireblocks? Yeah, of course. So essentially, when we start to look into the space of institutional activity around blockchain, predominantly probably blockchain, late 2017, early 2018, it was quite interesting that the industry started to change, right? Before, I would say probably before 2017, the majority of the activity was sort of buy and hold. And then we sort of like, you know, shifted into this uh, more capital market related activity where 
We've seen a lot of trading-related activities and setups that uh, were being established across, you know, from hedge funds to exchanges to proprietary trading groups to a lot of different brokers, OTCs, lending providers, and so on, right? Now, generally speaking, they actually, they need like a very different uh, infrastructure, both from a storage standpoint, right? So before that, there was quite a lot of, well, not that many solutions, but there were pretty much good solutions for cold storage, but you didn't have like a really good solution for hot or essentially high SLA, seconds SLA type of storage that is still secure, institutional, insured, and so on. So that was sort of like, you know, problem number one. And that probably like, you know, is the most discussed problem in the blockchain industry around custody. But what you actually realize is that the problem lies in, in a slightly different area of activity where people are actually transferring those assets, right? So I think anyone that like that ever done a Bitcoin transaction, you're familiar with that second that like, you know, you basically like, you know, copy paste an address into your wallet, you press enter, right? And then you hope for the best, that transaction will appear on the blockchain and will actually go to the recipient that you intended it to go, right? And you hope for you didn't make a mistake, you didn't leave an extra character in there or something like that. Yeah, that's the nature of it, I guess. Yeah, so basically, yeah, you, you didn't make a mistake, you weren't fished, your counterparty was not spoofed. You clearly have like a lot of uh, both uh, external cybersecurity risk, but also sort of like internal cybersecurity risk inside uh, in institutional environments, inside the threat, and also human errors. Yeah, that's obvious. You know, as, as you use it as a retailer, maybe as a retail uh, user, the transaction sizes can be meaningful, but clearly, for example, for Fireblocks, our average transaction size is north to $100,000. And therefore, you have like, zero room to make a mistake mm-hmm. because the, the nature of public blockchain is that there is no recourse. So because there were so many mistakes and or so many hacks that uh, were facilitated uh, within that area of the activity, most of the organization, they had a lot of operational constraints in terms of how they were, they were actually sending the transactions. So they would do all the test transfers, they will have multiple people approve and sign those transactions to make sure that there is no error and effectively because you actually need to to have multiple people at the same time working with the same potentially like you know hardware device you are only able to do those transactions in certain uh, during certain windows during the day time windows during the day and that just created a lot of different constraints, anxiety, operational deficiency, and eventually just it's not good return on capital, right, from an operational efficiency standpoint. So it's kind of that classic argument in any cybersecurity conversation of the usability and the convenience versus the security. Usually you're sacrificing one for the other, right? Yeah, correct. So, yeah, clearly here there was a lot of sacrifice, yes, to say the least. And by the way, not only there was a lot of sacrifice, but because that sacrifice came mostly around sort of like human or user monitor, basically you actually just added people and still the monitoring was done manually, you were still susceptible to the human factor, right? Mm-hmm. That you actually need to do 100 transactions per day and you have, you know, three, four people in your operations team, at some point they will make an error. Right. That's just like, you know, a numbers game over there. Right. And there was nothing automated. So basically what we've created is a solution that sort of solves all those issues. The first one is that we provide our customers with a highly secure, high SLA storage uh, that is institutional grade. And the second part is basically what we call the Fireblocks network, 
there is essentially an authentication network for settlements between counterparties. So we connect, we currently have integration to about 30 exchanges. We have over six additional 60 market participants on our platform. So overall 90 organizations that are on our platform. And when they transferring coins between them, they can do it with a click of a button without actually being susceptible to making a human error or being men in the middle or being susceptible to any one of those hacks. You've been around for a couple of years now, and you said you have 30 exchanges that you're working with. Did you find that when you started talking to these exchanges that they welcomed you with open arms, that they were excited for this type of solution? What was the general reaction when you presented your solution to these exchanges? So I think that the the interesting part about the way that we went to market, and that's mostly around, I think, how we were able to cleverly sort of like navigate our partnerships is that the technology that we've created was actually able to piggyback on the available APIs that at least the major exchanges already had at the time Mm -hmm. and essentially make those APIs more secure and uh, utilize those APIs through our technology that the I'll explain shortly. We didn't need to basically beg them for developing additional things for us. We were actually able to use already available um, resources on their end. And that's how we solved this chicken and egg problem that uh, we were able to go to the market participants that were interacting with the exchanges, primarily OTC desk, hedge funds, proprietary trading firms. And basically solve the problem for them as they were working with those exchanges without actually like, you know, requiring anything from the exchanges. Hmm. Uh, Once we had that and we were able to gain more and more of those customers, uh, clearly the relationship with the exchange improved and they recognized the importance that we have in the industry and especially for their clients. And then we were able to generate deeper integration with those exchanges. And clearly now we have very strong partnerships with quite a few of those exchanges. More so, there are exchanges today that are actually using our infrastructure for custody. So we're actually able to basically close the loop end-to-end in our infrastructure. But it's an excellent question because there was an interesting path that we took to basically resolve uh, an inherent uh, chicken and egg issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem certainly exists. And I mean, it seems like what you guys are doing is a great way to solve that problem. I mean, the problem's there. We all know the problem's there. So what you guys are doing is you're enhancing security and enhancing convenience, essentially, right? Yeah. Usually when you introduce security, you compromise convenience and mm-hmm. vice versa, mm-hmm. right? right? Actually, with Fireblocks, you sort of like solve both. You solve security, and by solving the security issue, you're actually introducing a much more streamlined experience, a more simplified and abstract experience that, to be honest, the way that I think about it is that if you take financial analysts, right, like you know, from, let's say, uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan that mm-hmm. never... Never, never, ever touched crypto, okay? How can you bring her or him into an environment that they can actually work with a system without now, like, you know, doing a PhD in cryptography? Right, right. <laughs> it's like, you know, and basically all the wallet solutions or, or the sort of like, you know, those single siloed infrastructures uh, that exist uh, at the market outside of the Fireblocks network, it really requires people to have a fairly good understanding of uh, how crypto is working, how transactions are being signed, what are the deposit addresses, because if they don't understand all those things, they are in a position to make a very expensive error. 
Yeah, it's a great point. And it's true. I mean, you could be an excellent trader in crypto, but you're never going to be as excellent as if you were somebody that was a trader that also knew how everything worked behind the scenes too, right? Because those are things that go hand in hand. They're extremely important because you could be a great trader and then you might see something that seems like a great opportunity and then whoops, it's a huge security risk and you just lost a ton of money. Yeah. And there are a lot of horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. We hear horror stories all the time on a large scale, on a small scale, just user-based scale. You hear about them all the time. And unfortunately, those are the stories that scare a lot of people away from crypto, a lot of companies away from crypto, and a lot of just people away from crypto in general, from mainstream adoption. So solving those issues and creating something that solves those issues is great. You guys have a white paper and I was checking it out and you talk about three main attack vectors in blockchain technology and in crypto. For anybody listening that doesn't know what those kind of primary weak points are in crypto, those potential vulnerabilities, can you talk about those and then how exactly what Fireblocks does solves those vulnerabilities? Yeah. So the first issue is probably the most discussed is basically the private key. How do you protect the private key? Because that's essentially that long uh, string is your password to basically instruct the movement of the assets that are in your wallet. And if your wallet is basically being hacked, when we always use a wallet was hacked, it's usually the case that uh, the private key was stolen. Then clearly the hackers are able to move the funds on your behalf to their own wallet. So that's like issue number one. I think that's probably like the most understood issue. Mm -hmm. The second issue is essentially what we call deposit address spoofing. That's actually the issue around the movement. The main problem in crypto that is sort of like, you know, fundamental to the method is the fact that we now have two counterparties. So Michael and Sal, Mm -hmm. And and Michael needs to send Sal uh, a Bitcoin. Now, how do I know your deposit address? There is no publicly available directory that tells me that your public address is that address. And somehow you need to transfer me that information, basically your deposit address or essentially your public key. During that process, we can have a fair amount of different, generally speaking, man-in-the-middle attacks or spoofing Mm -hmm. attacks that someone can basically sit between me and you uh, within the communication channel They can be in your computer, they can impersonate you and so on. Or even like my computer can be infected, I potentially install, for example, a malicious uh, Chrome extension and so on. And then this public key that I'm getting is actually not your public key, it's the public key of the hackers. And when I'm signing the transaction, instead of that transaction going into your wallet, it goes to the wallet of the guys in North Korea, right? That's that, That specific story happened multiple times. Both you and I have a background in cybersecurity. So a man-in-the-middle attack is pretty basic cybersecurity, right? So my question is, though, for an outsider or for some of the companies that you deal with um, that want to use Fireblocks, is that a common thing for them to understand? Is a man-in-the-middle attack something that they have heard of generally, or is that something that is completely kind of foreign to that? Yeah, so I think that the man-in-the-middle attack is a very basic and well-known attack among cybersecurity professionals. It's not a very common or it's not a popular among the general population. Therefore, the way that we usually refer to this is we call it deposit address spoofing because mm-hmm. I think people understand the concept of spoofing, like an easier concept for them to understand. And, and I would say like, you know, our client base would usually, you can actually sort of like, you know, divide it into two. So some of the larger organizations, they have security professionals. So they have a security manager, a CISO, and so on. And then like, you know, clearly the dialogue can be at the level that we had a second ago. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So you're probably yeah. dealing with those people generally when you're dealing with the company, you're probably dealing with the guys and the women that understand this kind of stuff. Not always. So I would actually say that like a lot of our clients are on the smaller scale. They mm-hmm. don't have those professionals. And then we 
would usually work either with the traders or with the operations or the COO. And in that case, you know, we will make the effort and we will educate them, right? So we, we would give them a crash course in cybersecurity because it, it is important, right? Yeah. I mean, as you said, it's a basic concept. So mm-hmm. it's not very difficult for people to understand once you explain it to them. And I do think that at least people in this space, they are open, they want to learn, they want to understand the risks. So I think like, you know, we were quite good in uh, interacting with our customers and, and sort of like bringing them up to speed with everything that they need to know there. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that just because when you're in an industry for a while, a lot of terms that seem commonplace to you and a lot of knowledge that seems commonplace to you, it's hard to know if it's commonplace to people outside of that industry. So I was just interested in how familiar people were with these kind of attacks. I mean, even look at SIM swapping, right? Like people have been talking about that a lot and how that's a cybersecurity risk right now. And not a lot of people still uh, really know about SIM swapping and how that could be a potential vulnerability. So it's just interesting to see what people know. I mean, when there's a lot of money involved, you would think you would brush up on, on your security vulnerabilities or I guess hire somebody or use a company like you guys, a technology like you guys that can handle the security risk for you. Yeah, and to be quite honest, I think that uh, from a cybersecurity standpoint, the challenge in this industry is the fact that a lot of the organizations that are entering the space, they are fairly small organizations. They don't have the Bank of America or JP Morgan's uh, $100 million security budget, right? Right. And all the professionals that they have. On the flip side, they are managing a very substantial amount of uh, assets, you know, in the millions. And the pressure, the, the amount of cyber criminals that are specifically targeting anyone who is involved in crypto is substantial, right? Like over the last couple of years, most of the organized crime groups in the cyberspace, they have shifted to basically go after either crypto broadly and specifically institutional crypto. Yeah, it's pretty wild to think about because there's such a strange dichotomy happening where you're used to, you know, we're again, we're in this industry, not just cybersecurity, but crypto in general. And we all appreciate crypto. We embrace crypto adoption and blockchain technology adoption. But then there's the outside world that still even validates that cryptocurrency is legitimate, right? Of course it is, but there are definitely organizations and people you know, outside the crypto space that don't see it as a, a valid form of technology or payment. But then you have like organized crime that is literally physically trying to get people's cold storage wallets and stuff like that. It's kind of like such a weird thing to think about. Yeah, just going back to that specific incident in 2017, which actually brought me into crypto, I think that was my realization of why this is a legitimate space, because essentially what happened there is that it was the Lazarus Group, which is basically the, the North Korean hacking team. Now, if you actually look at the at Lazarus Group and their activity, those guys are actually not famous for only hacking crypto. They were well famous before crypto, but because they were the guys that hacked SWIFT, they actually did like you know the biggest ATM heist before that. They were very well known in the cybersecurity domain for the nightmare of like, you know, any traditional financial institution. Mm. And then suddenly you basically see a group that was extremely successful in stealing hundreds of millions of real dollars, just pivoting overnight and just Mm. focusing the efforts on, on cryptocurrency businesses. And I think generally speaking, if you're trying to generalize, you basically understand that from their standpoint, those things are equivalent. Right. I mean, like Bitcoin is already equivalent for them as a U.S. dollar and they see it as a valid mean for, you know, a meaningful thing to put their efforts for. 
right? And that makes sense to pivot to a system where vulnerabilities exist and haven't had as much time to solve those vulnerabilities. Yeah, there is an aspect around the vulnerabilities. So to be honest, I'm not sure that uh, fundamentally on the blockchain level, I think that the Bitcoin and Ethereum and the big and the popular blockchains are extremely secure, robust technologies, even compared to traditional financial uh, systems, especially like Bitcoin, you can look at it as the biggest publicly facing honeypot that exists, right? It's sort of standing there for 10 years, uh, over 10 years, 12 years. The actual chain itself, no one was successfully hacked. It. The vulnerability clearly moves to the edges, right? To the participants. The participants are operating in a very different environment than in the traditional ecosystem because one, it's an open environment. And two, it's an environment where there is no recourse, right? That's the biggest issue that even if we look back on the hack that happened to Swift, while initially $280 million were stolen, Swift was able to recourse 200 out of the 280. But with Bitcoin, while the situation was the proliferation of AML tools like chain analysis and elliptic sort of improves the ability to, to basically stop the path for the mule for muling of the asset after it was stolen we are still like you know far beyond the recourse uh, capabilities of, of the traditional system right if you got 250 bitcoin stolen you're probably not going to be getting 200 bitcoin back like you would get that money back that fiat currency back it's, it's not as easy to recover by any means right I interrupted you. I apologize, but I wanted to have a nice little side conversation just about cybersecurity. But we were talking about the three tax factors that you guys address with Fireblocks. So you had mentioned deposit address spoofing, talked about compromised addresses. And then the third one is with API keys. Yeah. So the third one can be broadly generalized as credentials or API keys. So actually, you mentioned SIM swap. I would, I would even put SIM swap within that category. In reality, basically what happens in the crypto ecosystem or probably like in general, is that you're not only interacting with your own system, you're also interacting with third-party systems such as exchanges. And then specifically, you actually would uh, deposit funds with those exchanges and you would have either your credentials, uh, you will have API keys for treasury operations to deposit and withdrawals. And basically, if your credentials or API keys for your account on that exchange were compromised, then the hackers can essentially log in on your behalf and withdraw those funds. Right. And again, that's a problem that we see with just people using crypto, but also with businesses using crypto, right? Yes. So how do you guys address those three kind of attack factors? The first issue that we mentioned, basically the private key, we created a technology to, for a very secure and online wallet solution that is based on uh, multiple lines of defense, where the first line of defense is uh, multi-party computation, MPC. The idea of MPC, it's a fairly interesting technology for protecting private keys because what it allows us to do is to distribute the private key and essentially eliminate a single point of compromise, which in a more uh, simple way eliminates the possibility for the hacker to hack a single machine or a single user and by hacking that person or that machine, uh, compromise the entire private key. So that's basically our first line of defense over there. The second line of defense, and this is where we're actually quite unique, is that we also coupling uh, multi-party computation with uh, hardware security. So we're also protecting it on the edges, each individual uh, key share, we're protecting it with hardware. That essentially eliminates the first problem by making it extremely difficult for the hacker to ever compromise the private key. The second and third issues, which is essentially the, your ability to, to send assets to counterparties, to exchanges, or basically receive them from counterparties or exchanges, is mitigated by um, the Fireblocks network. That technology 
again, it's based on a unique IP that we've developed, but fundamentally it sort of abstracts all this, like just generally speaking, the deposit address concept for you. And what it does, it allows you to connect to your counterparties, whether those, let's say, exchanges, OTC desks, a lending provider, and so on. You're actually seeing it like basically you have a directory with icons of people that you want to connect to, or you can actually use like a short code, like six digits that uh, you can connect to your counterparties. And then when you want to send them transactions or they would send you the transaction or you want to withdraw your assets from the exchange, it's just like a click of a button. You select the party that you want to send it to and the underlying technology knows how to bring the deposit address from your counterparty, authenticate it, and mitigate the feasibility of either a man-in-the-mail attack or a human error. Okay, so you guys are essentially creating a network of people and companies and organizations. So are you guys essentially then vetting each person that comes into the network? Yes, that's an excellent question. At the moment, we're only operating with one institutional parties, and two, we are vetting them to a certain extent. Essentially, we have a process of onboarding those into our platform. Most importantly, we are the one that basically defining their name in the network. You know, it's not like you know someone can come into the network and tell us I'm Coinbase and we will register <laughs> right. as Coinbase. In- right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's kind of what I meant by vetting is that. They're coming to you and saying, hey, we want to join your network. And you are proving their validity of who they're saying they are. I mean, there's not going to be a way for somebody to say, hey, I'm Coinbase. You know, let me in your network without actually proving they're Coinbase. So I guess that's kind of what I meant by vetting. So you could basically trust the people that are inside this network, essentially. Correct. And this might be down the road. I know you guys are a pretty new company, but are there other networks like this? And then would you guys eventually look into working with those other networks? Or is that something that's a possibility? Yes, we are the only provider of such a network or such uh, technology. Mm -hmm. We are working, expanding the network. So at the moment, as I mentioned, we have integration with the exchanges, but then the entities that are non-exchanges that they are working inside of this network, uh, they're usually using our wallet. What we are doing right now, we have multiple initiatives to actually expand the network to third-party wallet providers that are not Fireblocks, that are basically institutional top-tier either custody or wallet providers for right now, not not exactly for retail, but uh, Mm -hmm. mostly for institutions. Then essentially they will join the network, so we will own the network. We don't have a good example right now of interconnecting it to a different network because such networks don't exist, but Mm -hmm. generally speaking, yes. At, At the end of the day, the way that we think about it is this is fairly similar to what Swift or Visanet or ACH are doing, right, in the traditional financial space. So that's sort of like, you know, what we are replacing or disrupting or whatever you want to look at it as we sort of like transform finance into blockchain-based trans- finance. I don't think we will actually like, you know, work with those guys because those guys, their technology is not applicable for blockchain at all. But we do think about how we can maintain certain openness compared to the traditional financial system when we think about blockchain specifically public public blockchain being able to being open in a sense for both from extensibility standpoint and interoperability standpoint with other similar initiatives is definitely something that we're quite thoughtful of and hopefully like you know more solutions will come down down the path we will be able to yeah interesting yeah that's a great answer i mean it's cool that you guys are one of a kind right now because not many technologies can say that so i think it's awesome that you guys are one of a kind and then 
I think once you start seeing other people pop up that are trying to do the same thing, it kind of gives even more credence to the technology that you guys have because people will see like, hey, this is a technology that needs to exist. This is addressing security. It's addressing usability. And it's a great technology to use. One question I have for you, cryptocurrency in the community A lot of people obviously really value the decentralized nature of blockchain tech and crypto in general. And so by bringing in an entity that has oversight, like you do with any, I guess, exchange, any, you know, non-decentralized exchange, people in the community, it's fractured opinions of that because it's introducing an authority in a decentralized sphere. So do you guys have people that have those criticisms or that are weary of using a technology like yours because it is more centralization in a space that values decentralization? Yeah, I guess we have two answers for that. One is that what Fireblock does, while we are like sort of one entity, we don't replace the decentralized nature of the blockchain. We are sort of, you know, you can think about it a bit like uh, the blockchain is sort of the IP and the layer and we, the TCP IP layer and we are like the DNS layer. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't affect the decentralized nature of the blockchain. In the institutional space specifically, I think that the decentralization is extremely important and I think it's important for in terms of counterparty risks and other aspects. But at the moment, people still using are, are somewhat comfortable with uh, some kind of community type mm-hmm. of solution. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a good examples like Silvergate Bank, Signature Bank. They have their own networks and uh, you know, people are somewhat like happy with uh, having that. So we are basically seeing a similar utility. And then there is another question, like what, what's the alternative, right? So some of the alternatives that exist are really centralized alternatives. For example, if you think about some of the stuff that people are doing, which are basically like all parties will put their assets in my cold storage because I'm the custodian. And I would just run a side ledger and then we'll basically do the settlements this way. If you think about what they are doing, that actually affects decentralization, right? That basically reduces the decentralized nature of blockchains. And there are actually multiple initiatives like this in the market with various grades of adoption. We are not changing that, right? Like, you know, we are not affecting the decentralized. Everything that we do is on-chain settlement. More so, by the way, our counterparty or basically our users are not forced to work only within our network. Our users can whitelist third-party counterparties. They can also send assets to people that are not on the Fireblocks network. So we, we maintain sort of like, you know, an open posture. Mm-hmm. And probably sort of like, you know, the long-term vision here is really, as I said earlier, if other networks come in, then I think we have a fairly smart way to basically build interoperability and then create some kind of more like a federated model like you have in the internet. That's a great answer too, because it's a philosophical question. And I think it pops in my head primarily because I deal with a lot of just like the actual community of crypto enthusiasts and blockchain enthusiasts. And so when you are looking at that community, it is a lot of times the debates and the conversations are philosophical in nature. Obviously they're technological too, but they are philosophical. But when you're dealing with large companies who are talking about money or just even smaller companies that just want to secure their transfers and secure their payments, then I think the philosophy is less important. It's obviously important naturally, but I think they're not having those same conversations that you'd see um, if you go on Reddit (laughs) or something like that, where people are talking and complaining about the lack of centralization or 
decentralization rather. So yeah, I think that's a great answer. That yeah, I mean, to go to a Bitcoin dev conference, then yeah. it's, a, it's a different type of conversation there. For sure, yeah. You talked a little bit about custody. We've done a lot of interviews on this podcast with crypto tax related professionals. So custody is actually something that has come up a few times when we've talked about the legal and regulatory aspects of cryptocurrency and custody in a sense of, do you own it? What is custody? Especially if you're, again, using like a centralized exchange. So when you're referring to custody, are you referring to those same questions about custody, whether somebody owns it, if it's in kind of a centralized exchange, how you determine custody? Is that what you're referring to as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is sort of like, you know, a fundamental question in crypto, what is custody? Because one can claim that uh, our custodian, the book of records, right, is actually the blockchain itself. So potentially we can actually say that our real custody is Bitmain and, and all those miners, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, that's one way to look at it. But I think that, uh, you know, the theoretical aspect aside for a second, yeah. uh, it's fairly clear that uh, right now the industry views the private key safekeeping as a custodial function, right? And given that we are not a custodian because we are using MPC, I can explain a bit how that works from a regulatory standpoint. We are a custody technology provider, right? For either our direct customers that basically use our platform and then they use our technology for custody where we serve sort of like, you know, as the backstop or uh, uh, with qualified custodians that use our technology. For example, Prime Trust, uh, who is a US-based qualified custodian, they're uh, one of our customers and they use our technology for their wallet and key management. They become the custodian. So that's the basic the way that we look at custody. Got it. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right, Michael, so we've talked a lot about security. I really appreciate you coming on here and nerding out with me about cybersecurity. It's some really great information that you shared. I was really excited to hear a lot about what you guys offer and what you guys do. And so thank you for explaining it and thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Sal. If somebody wants to reach out to you or if they want to find out more about Fireblocks, what would be the best way to do that? They should probably go first to our website, www.fireblocks.com. They can find more information over there or they can reach us over email at info@fireblocks.com. Okay. And yeah, you guys got the white paper on your website as well. And then if somebody wants to join the network, they would also just go to fireblocks.com, right? And then they'd have to fill out a form in order to join the network. Yeah. And then we'll reach out to them and we'll be able to run an evaluation uh, process. And uh, if the service is uh, useful for them, they will be able to join the network. Okay, great. Well, again, Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. And maybe if you have time, we'll have to have you back on another time because Great conversation. I think a necessary conversation. If you're in this industry, if you're even just a trader, it really is important to kind of have a better understanding of the technology itself and the security risks. And it'll make you probably a better trader if you do understand these concepts, even if they're just the base concepts, it's important to understand. Definitely. That's for sure. All right, great. Well, hey, I hope you have a great day and thank you again for talking to me today. Thanks all. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Bitcoin Taxes podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for more cryptocurrency and blockchain-related podcasts. Don't forget to check out our new mini-podcast, The Cryptocurrency Informer, where we highlight interesting events occurring each week in the crypto and crypto-adjacent spaces. The Bitcoin Taxes podcast was created by Colin Mackey and Salvatore Vesio and edited and produced by Isabel Chaparro and Salvatore Vesio.